Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And we especially love bringing you stories about family businesses. And today we bring you one with a long history that begins with a fruit cart in 1859. Here is Alex Castle the master distiller at Old Dominic Distillery, to tell us the history of this Memphis family business. 
So one of the best things to me about working for Earl Dominic and DeCanale and Company is the history of it. That history dates back to 1866 and it is very tangible history. That whole family held on to so many documents and ledger books and letters. I don't know what they were thinking when they held on to it all, but I know we're, we're very happy that it's there now. The family history isn't just some story that's been passed down by word of mouth. It is a history that is very, very real uh, and that we can show to everyone just how authentic that story is. And to be able to be a part of such an authentic story um, and hopefully you know, be a part of its, its history eventually is just, it's very rewarding. So our founder, Domenico Canale, uh, was an Italian immigrant, and he came over to the States in 1859, landed in New Orleans, and decided to take a riverboat up to Memphis. He already had family here, his uncle had a business already. He decided to work for his uncle. That building is literally about 100 yards from the uh, current distillery. Worked for him for a couple years and decided to start his own company in 1866, at which time he founded DeCanale and Company started off as a modest little fruit cart and he would just go up and down what is now Front Street selling fruit. Over the years that grew, became a much bigger distribution company, started distributing beer because he had refrigerated trucks and decided in the midst of all of that to found Old Dominic Whiskey. He did not distill his own product but he did buy aged product barrels from other states so we have records of barrels from Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, and he would bring them down on the railroads and uh, blend them here under the label of Old Dominic. It was actually one of the biggest whiskey brands in the southern region during that time. And of course, Prohibition hit, and so Old Dominic whiskey had to stop being produced. Fortunately, the other parts of the company continued on, so the fruit distribution, the beer distribution, all of that continued on through Prohibition. And sadly, Dominico did not see the repeal of Prohibition. He actually died just a few days before it was repealed. DeCanale and Company continued on, just without the whiskey. Bring it up to, I guess it was the late 90s, they actually sold off the food distribution but still maintained the beer distribution that they had. And so they were the Anheuser-Busch distributor in Memphis. And then in 2010, I believe it was, they actually sold that off as well. And so they kind of had lost all of their Memphis foothold. They had other businesses, other investments, just nothing actually in Memphis. And so in 2013, when they found a bottle of Dominic Toddy, Basically, they found this bottle full, still wax sealed. And they decided to crack it open. I believe one of them actually tasted the liquid, <laughs> but had that liquid analyzed. They sent it to California to see if we could figure out what actually was in that product. Because with all of the documents that the family held on to, they never held on to the recipe for this product. Go figure. And so, with the help of a lab out in California, they learned the different components that were present in that bottle. 
Couldn't figure out the exact ratios or anything like that, so no specific recipe, but they were able to figure out what was in it. And then from there, we essentially reverse engineered it. And so today's president, Chris Canale Jr., wanted to see the company get back to Memphis, wanted more than just their headquarters to be here. He decided, this seems like a cool idea. Someone said, well, why don't you sell the brand? He said, no, this is how we get back to Memphis. And so he and his cousin, Alex Canale, decided to open up what is now Old Dominic Distillery. That construction project officially started in 2015. And that was the same year that they decided to bring on a head distiller. And I was lucky enough to get a message on LinkedIn. I had nothing better to do. I said, sure, I'll come down for an interview. And ended up deciding to move to Memphis um, that same year. And so about a year of construction and we were actually ready to produce the first whiskey not just out of Old Dominic, but the first whiskey produced in Memphis ever. There were no distilleries here even before Prohibition. Um, so December of 2016 was kind of a, a big year for Old Dominic and for Memphis. And then flash forward a couple months, May of 2017, and we were actually finished with all of construction and open to the public um, for our first tours at the beginning of May. Um, and since then, we have added multiple products. We now have two vodkas. We have our Memphis toddy. We have a gin that's about to come out. And we also have our Hewling Station bourbon and even the Hewling Station line. We're about to release even more products under it. So it's been a very, very busy two, two and a half years. And again, you're listening to Alex Castle, and she's the head distiller at Old Dominic Distillery. What a thing to do and what a way to honor a family heritage. And what a way to honor a city. And when we come back, we'll hear more of this remarkable story from head distiller Alex Castle. The story of Old Dominic Distillery, a local story. Oxford, where we broadcast, is a mere hour's drive south from the great city of Memphis. The story continues here on Our American Stories. Folks, if you love the great American stories we tell and love America like we do, we're asking you to become a part of the Our American Stories family. If you agree that America is a good and great country, please make a donation. A monthly gift of $17.76 is fast becoming a favorite option for supporters. Go to OurAmericanStories.com now and go to the Donate button and help us keep the great American stories coming. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And we're back with the story of Old Dominic Distillery in Memphis, Tennessee, and its master distiller, Alex Kessel. Alex was the first female master distiller in the state of Tennessee at the first whiskey distillery in Memphis. Here's Alex to tell us her story. So I am originally from Kentucky. I grew up in a small town called Burlington. It's about 12 miles south of Cincinnati, Ohio. It was definitely a type A, so when I got to high school, fell in love with maths and sciences and knew I wanted to do something with them. And I was talking to my mom, trying to figure out, you know, what could I do with my life? Because at 15, you need to know what you're gonna do with the rest of your life. 
and uh, she had been reading some articles and came across chemical engineering. I was like, that sounds perfect, but I can't teach, so what do you do with that? And uh, my mom, who doesn't drink, said, you can make beer and be a brewmaster, or you can be a master distiller and make bourbon. So that's perfect. That's exactly what I want to do. Truthfully, I have no idea why it sounded interesting, because I was one of those people in high school who did not drink. And like I said, my mom didn't drink. We didn't have bourbon in the house. Up to that point, my only experience with bourbon was my parents taking me to Maker's Mark when I was about five or six years old, and I hated it. Absolutely hated it. I remember my dad sticking his finger in the fermenter and eating it, and I thought I was gonna throw up. It just was so gross to me. I didn't like the smell of that room. And then, I can't remember if it was the start of the tour or the end of the tour, but they were handing out fudge. I'm a kid. I absolutely want some fudge. No one told me it was bourbon fudge. That does not taste like fudge. It was horrible. So that being my only experience with bourbon, I really have no idea why I ended up in this industry. But when I was 15 or 16, that just, it sounded so perfect. And being from Kentucky, you know, it was a part of my heritage, even if we weren't involved in it. And so I, that's, I went to the University of Kentucky to study chemical engineering and was fortunate enough to get a co-op while I was in school with a small company, not so small now, but a small company in Lexington called Alltech. And at the time they did animal nutrition supplements and had a brewery. And I thought, that's perfect, because I thought I wanted to do beer. Well, while I was there, they sneakily added two pot stills into the brewery and had no one to run them or clean them for that matter. And so my boss sent me and one other person from the engineering office to clean them because they had come all the way from Scotland. So they had a lot of dirt on them from the travel. And uh, shortly after that is when he asked me if I wanted to observe a distillation. So not just polish the stills, but you can actually help run them. And instead of observing, I actually got to run the distillation that day. My boss forgot that he had to take his kids to the dentist that day. And so I show up and he says that and I think, oh man, now I have to go to the office. This is gonna be boring. And instead, in about five minutes, ran me through the entire process and said, if you have to, just shut it down. I'll be back later and then left. And so I ran the stills that day. Did not have to shut them down, thankfully. And I guess because I managed to do that that first day, I was cheap labor, they didn't have to hire anyone else, so they just let me do it from that point on. So I filled over the first 100 barrels, I believe it was, of Pierce Lions Reserve. And from that day on, that was all I wanted to do. I just wanted to make whiskey. And so I set off on that path and have been fortunate enough to know people in the industry and get my foot in the door and have stayed in it ever since. So after college, I have, I did one year making laundry detergent because the industry, while it was growing, everyone was still so new, nobody was making money, which meant they couldn't hire anybody. Um, so no one was hiring at the time. But fortunately, one of the guys I used to work with at Alltech remembered that I wanted to be in the industry and so connected me with his friend who was a recruiter and was hiring for Wild Turkey. 
And so I managed to get on as a distillery production supervisor at Wild Turkey about a year after I graduated college and worked there for four years. Uh, started off as the number two supervisor. Then about a month, that supervisor got shifted to a different department, so I very quickly became the number one supervisor. And so for four years, I was overseeing all of production at Wild Turkey, responsible for third shift and first shift, so the hours for that were spectacular. I woke up at 2 a.m. every day, so <laughs> definitely cut my teeth in a really good way up there. And then it was randomly the beginning of 2015 that I got that message on LinkedIn asking if I knew anyone who would be interested in a startup distillery in Memphis. And I took about two days to think about it and sent my resume in. And my first trip to Memphis was for the interview and I fell in love with the place. I fell in love with the city immediately. Uh, but also fell in love with the company. I, everyone I met during that weekend was absolutely fantastic. And then they actually brought me into the distillery, which at the time was a completely empty building. Um, the stairs were absolutely terrifying, but I went up them in heels. And, uh, but seeing the space and seeing how much work was to be done I could see the challenge that it was, and at the time I didn't know I wanted that kind of challenge, but seeing it, having it put right in front of me, I realized that that's exactly what I needed. And so it just, the whole concept of really doing start to finish with this company and with this brand was so thrilling. Creating a new brand and product is incredibly stressful but it was exhilarating. So just the distillery itself, because we do consider the physical space a product for us. You know, I actually got to sit in on interior design meetings. So I got to help pick tile for the bathrooms and light fixtures. And I was amazed at how much I enjoyed that. And then with the products themselves, of course, had to develop the liquid, which was super fun. You know, my nerdy side came out, but I also, got to have input on the bottles themselves, you know, the shapes, the labels, how they looked, everything. I got input on all of it. Um, whereas, you know, where I came from, I had no say in any of that. I would never have say in any of that. Um, and so to be able to put my stamp on every aspect of the product and the brand, it was incredibly rewarding. So yeah, I'm fortunate to have owners who really do um, trust their employees, put faith in their employees. If they hired you to do something, they're gonna do everything they can to, to make sure they let you do that job. Um, and like on a personal level, it's great. I actually do get along with them. You know, we're friends, we've gone on trips together. Um, and over the years, I think I've proven myself to them to where they've let me take more and more control. Um, and kind of oversee the day-to-day -day operations of the distillery. Don't let anyone tell you you can't do it. Women engineers aren't really a thing or weren't a thing when I entered college, and female distillers weren't a thing at the time either. Um, so there were a lot of people who were saying that, you know, maybe, maybe go somewhere else, maybe do something else. And I ignored all of them and just pushed through, and now you see female distillers everywhere. You see women opening their own distilleries. 
It is fantastic. I mean, it's it, seeing women in the industry it goes right along with just how much the industry has grown and changed in recent years. Um, you know, it used to be super labor intensive and, you know, rolling around a 500 pound barrel, not the easiest thing. Most women probably don't really want to do that. Um, but so many things are now automated that that labor aspect really isn't there. Yes, the working conditions can be very interesting. You know, you're standing in 150 degree temperatures on a regular basis. Women can put up with that just as well as men can, but women actually have better tastes, better sense of taste and better sense of smell. So if anything, we're actually more qualified to be doing this. And so it's, I love going to conferences every year and there are more and more women each year. And it is, it's fantastic to not be the only one at the table anymore. So to see everyone embracing this change in the industry, it's, it's the best time to be a part of it. And great job by Robbie on that piece, finding it and producing the piece. And a special thanks to Alex Castle. That was her voice. The city of Memphis, Old Dominic Distillery. Their story, Alex Castle's story, here on Our American Story. we continue with Our American Stories. Our next story comes to us from a mother of two living in Virginia, but it begins far from there. Let's take a listen. I am Miriam Ibrahim. I was born on November 3rd, 1987, in a refugee camp uh, in the city of Gadarif from Sudan. Uh, my mother uh, flew war from Ethiopia when she was 10 years old with her uh, sister. They lost all of their families and they are the only survived members of the family. And they settled in a refugee camp. Um, when my mom was 16, she met with my father and they got married. Uh, my father originally from Darfur. Um, the background of the story is that he killed a man from a different tribe. The man is, is an honor killing because the man is in a relationship with my aunt, my father's younger sister. So my father find out about the, them they meet and know each other. So he gets so angry and he went on and killed the man. And when he came to this faraway area just to hide because the other family are seeking uh, revenge, so that's why he met with my mom. Later, after my youngest sister was born, the situation got really very bad. I remember lots of the fight where she'd been beaten. And when we came, my brother and I went in the middle to stop the fighting. We beaten also. So he left and they got divorced. We decided to move from the refugees camp. I always have many questions about my father's family. When we moved to that place, she, she had to change our last name and everything. Because I didn't know this until later on the time. That's, that's what I always question her. Like, why you don't want us to know my daddy's family? Why you don't want us to be connected to them? So um, she done that actually for our protection. Yeah. 
So we moved to that city and it's actually a lot of Muslims groups in that area. So I have my youngest brother, his name is Hassan and the youngest sister. So my brother was totally different than my mom and I because he's extreme Muslim. And then when we moved to the big city, he really fell to the trap of the imams. My mom was really upset for him. Like if she ever tried like to stop him or do, she would get immediately get killed. So she tried her best to convince him. I did try my best, but he didn't help. So in Sudan and many Muslim countries, all students, no matter what's your religion, do have to pass those uh, four subjects, Arabic, English, math, and Islamic study. Islamic study include uh, study Agida, Quran, and, and Sunnah. Quran, you study Quran full, Quran, okay? You memorize the scripture. Sunnah about the life of Muhammad. And then Agida about the life of the Sahaba and how you're supposed to do marriage in business. And they have a structure for everything you do. Even the way like use the bathroom, marriage, the way you communicate with unbelievers, the way you do a war, the way you do business with bank account, managing money, everything. So we have to do that. Like I have all the knowledge about Quran. And then in that situation, I was targeted by my teachers because we are Christian and you're sitting next to Muslim student and you hear the teacher, you know, say it louder and you have to repeat after her the verses that are saying how to treat the unbeliever and how God will punish them and how they are bad they are, you know, how they go to hell. And I was like, I don't want to repeat after her. So they start like talking to me. No, you have to follow this. You have to say this because Allah said and Muhammad said, and I just don't want it. Like, I don't want it. The same time, when I come home, I tell my mom that, oh, no, don't do that. They're going to kill you. That's what my mom will say. And I'm like, I have seen these people always respond to the aggressive behavior of imams and Muslims and leaders. The response from the religious minority is that we got to do what they want to be in peace. I'm like, that isn't peace, that's weakness. And I always argue with them. So close to my graduation, I lost my sister first. And then a few months later, my mom passed away. She worked, she had a restaurant on the highway between the city of Gallabat border and Gadarif. And one of the things she does, she helps. There's a lot of human trafficking, smuggling in that area. And one of the things my mom did is when those smugglers bring in those girls, she questioned them. She sees them like nine, ten years old. So she, when she questioned them, she offered them help if you needed help. So, and she went on a report that, but the corrupt officers went on and told the smuggler, this woman, you have to be careful about this woman because she started talking to the girls you guys bring in. Girls and boys. So I get to know her. she was not, it was an accident as I was told. It was, yeah. So the other now here, my mom died and spent a lot of time with the nuns. I I get to know my my sister-in-law. She's in a wheelchair 
and my priest would like you, Miriam, are the only person I would trust. So that's how we became friends, and then I get to know her brother. We get married to him. So after I have my oldest, my first child, when I, my husband left, he he was in he lived in the United States, so he would come and go to Sudan. So after our marriage, he left, he came to United States, and I was he left me pregnant with our first child. So I started my own business. That my mom left uh, farming land, and she left the house, and she left some saving for me. So I used that, and I started business. I sold her restaurant. I did very well on that, and then out of the sudden, I my husband also went back to Sudan at that time. My son was. Um, crawling and then I started receiving this phone call about family members that are looking for me and then we come from them to police receive a phone call have to go to the police station question this is your family and they want you back and I'm like that's why my mom always not wanted me to connect with you guys so, and I find out they know where I live and everything. I'm like, why don't you guys come and lock my, zo- my door? Because we know you're living a wrong life. So what do you mean? Because we know you go to church and you're married to Christian. And I'm holding my son. I told the officer, I have a family of my own now. Why are they? That's not family. The family don't bring their daughter to the police station. So he said, no, this is their family and they want you to back. And they are right. The officer said they are right. Because if you're their daughter, your father is a Muslim. You're not supposed to be living this life. So you break too many laws. I said, really? I'm like, who did I kill? Who did I hurt? So I'm like building a business that providing jobs for many people, including even like refugee people in, in that area. So like, no, you are... Uh, committing adultery. And you've been listening to Miriam Ibrahim share her story of life in Sudan before she came to America to live in Virginia. When we come back, more of this remarkable story here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Our American Stories and with Miriam Ibrahim's story. And so many millions of Americans end up at our shores suffering from some type of persecution, religious or otherwise. Let's pick up where we last left off with Miriam and her story. So in September 2013, go in back to court every day, just question who you are. They say their name, Muslim name, and I say my, my Christian name, and I say I'm Christian. They said she's a Muslim. So the judge wanted me just to say, accept what they said. And, you know, I said, okay, you're Muslim, go do your family. I said, what's, what's going to happen to my children, my child? At the time, I didn't know I was pregnant. So my child, we have to go to the orphan because he's a legitimate child. 
and then you're gonna get flogged hundred lashes and go with your family. And on Christmas Eve of 2013, I was sent to jail because I responded like, you know, you can't respond as a girl, as a woman. You don't dare to open it, to look at the judge's face or talk to him. You can't do that. So you just to be bowing your head down and covering your face, your hair, and just quiet, not even breathing, like, you know, don't even... So, and before I go to jail, I have to go through to do medical tests and then um, including pregnancy. And I really wasn't prepared to have a second child at that time. Martin is young, but this trial started happening and I don't think it was a good time. I mean, but gods have a different world. And they said, you're pregnant. I'm like, what? I'm going to jail, getting a news that I'm pregnant. I'm supposed to be really happy. I was happy, but like, what? How? I mean, just, you know, I'm very confused and I'm very upset. I'm freaked out. So I sent there and there's other women. When I walk in, all this face bruises and so sad and horrible situation. I'm holding my son. So somehow Martin was long day. He just fell asleep and I just closed my eyes. I said, let me pray. So when out of the sudden, I, I hear this deep voice. You are not alone. And I open my eyes and I'm like, what did you say? Who you are? Where are you? I'm like, so the other women in the cell start laughing. And they call the officer said, I'm crazy. They put chance on my feet. Chance because my crime is in adultery and apostasy now. And I'm supposed to receive um, death sentence for apostasy and 100 lashes for adultery. But didn't read the sentence. Give me three days, the judge. So I remember on my on the track back from court to prison, I was praying and I was like, okay, God, three days. And it just like, oh, Jonah was in the well for three days. Jesus was in the tomb for three days. This have to be miracles that I really, you really have for me. And I'm just waiting for that miracle. We're back again to the end of the trial. I walk in, I was put up in the cage and there's like 50 officers around the cage, big like kids, and there's bench in there. The imam came in and then the judge came in. He asked me to stand up and he was very angry. The judge was very angry. So he, he asked me again, I'm gonna ask one more time. Are you Muslim or Christian? And he would say my Islamic name, Abrar. And I said, I'm a Christian. And I was always Christian. And I always be. So, because a lot of people really can see in their eyes, they want me to, they want me to say what he said, really. Because death, you're going to die. But they don't see what I see. Like, they don't see what I see. Like, I see fear into his eyes. But that wasn't on me. That wasn't on my heart. And I do, I do that moment really felt so, so, so bad for him to be in that position. And I just remembering that the word Jesus had said on the cross that when he was crucified, Father, forgive them for they did not know what they are doing. So I was, I received my sentence that day. But 
the end of the, the, his world, because you are pregnant, and that was my miracle, because you are pregnant, you're given two years. You give birth and nurse the child. I give birth two years and as a child, and then after the child turned two years, they took into the orphan and they held my execution. So my church is involved. That's how the Vatican get involved. And then my husband is a U.S. citizen, my children are a U.S. citizen. The first thing we start asking before we got sent to jail, we, we knock the embassy's door and we ask for help. It just happened that day I was called into the office and I was told to bring all my items, my stuff. I wasn't even given a chance to say bye to the other inmates and the ladies I know. So I left prison. From prison, I was asked to go find a safe place because my house is no longer a safe place. And U.S. Embassy is almost like outside Khartoum uh, city. So uh, we stayed at the U.S. Embassy for a month. And then that night, just we've been called. Uh, I left Sudan to Italy. I said, uh, they asked where I, if I want to stay in, in Italy and I really wanted to come to the state because that's what I feel. It's my children where they are belong to. So, yeah, I was told to escape Sudan before during my trial and everything. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm not, you know, going to do that. That's why I was called crazy. I was called stupid. I'm not smart. I don't know how to, you know, to play well, but it just wasn't easy for me because my faith and my beliefs is not like a jacket or mask I would wear when I'm safe and then take off. It's the way I would live my life, the way I made a decision that knowing my relationship with God is, is not involved anyone else. It's between me and him. That's the thing that my mom would tell, teaches me always. She's telling me, she's telling me like, don't let anyone to put fear into your heart because if it does happen, that's how, people, that's how they control you, I mean, you know. But fear and come control, with fear come control. So, and, and, and God said, don't fear. And I know he, I wasn't afraid of the threat of the enemies of their, no matter how they try to think themselves are big and strong, but I see them weak. I see them terrorists. I see them, they use terror, they use fear, but I don't comply with that because none of, not my life or my future or anything that is not in their hands, it's in God's hand. So, yeah, I'm here today. I'm in the United States. My children, Martin is nine, ma nine years old. <laughs> From nine months old in prison to nine years old now. My daughter is seven. They love Jesus. They they go to Catholic school. They serve Martin as an altar server at the church. Maya wants to do music when she gets her first communion. She's going to get her first communion on May. So she wants to do music, ministry, and she loves to sing. She do uh, ballet, she do um, Martin do basketball, they do karate, 
their Cub Scout. We, I volunteer a lot on the community with, uh, with the women's shelter. So they help me with stuff like that. They do a lot of good stuff. And a terrific job on the production and storytelling by Greg. And a special thanks to Miriam Ibrahim for sharing her story, her family's story. The book is Shackled, One Woman's Dramatic Triumph Over Persecution, Gender Abuse, and a Death Sentence. And you can get it at your local bookstores or wherever you buy your books. What a trial scene this is. It's better than anything in the movies that I've seen. And I'm almost visualizing what this was like for her to sit there and have to answer, are you a Muslim or a Christian? And in America, we don't do that. George Washington wrote a letter to a synagogue in Rhode Island assuring them religious bigotry would not be sanctioned in this country. And he wrote these words, for happily the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. And those words are true. It's why Miriam brought her family to the United States. A story of religious persecution, and in the end, a story of courage and triumph. Miriam Ibrahim's story, here on Our American Stories. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth no matter who you are. 
Mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.